Today's guest, Daniel Kraft, MD, has many credits to his name. He's a board-certified doctor in internal medicine and pediatrics. He's the faculty chair of medicine at Singularity University. He's founded companies, invented medical devices, and done research on stem cells and regenerative medicine. Dr. Kraft is also the executive director of the Exponential Medicine Conferences, which bring together a wide range of thought leaders, innovators, and medical experts. This year's conference is coming up soon, November 4th through the 7th in San Diego. We'll get a preview and information on how you can attend. Dr. Kraft tells us about it and his career in today's interview with WebMD's Senior Medical Director, Dr. Hansa Bargava. Daniel, you've done a lot in the innovations field, but I'd like to start at the beginning. How did you decide on a medical career? I think I decided on a medical career when I was in high school. I actually was lucky. I lived pretty close to the National Institutes of Health and ended up uh, biking there, working in the summer after 10th grade, making monoclonal antibodies uh, to parts of the immune system. And actually came up with a science fair project that uh, ended up curing allergies, at least in the test tube, and then later in, uh, in rats. And it actually, years later, became the basis for an actual um, therapy that Genetex cells called Zolaire, used by uh, many asthma and allergy patients. But that got me excited about the applications of translating science to from like bench to bedside. And um, I always popped into my head that I wanted to be a doctor. So I kind of kept that path through college and mixed in research and became an EMT, an ambulance driver at, at Brown University, where there was a student-run ambulance system, and uh, kind of blended my interest in science and clinical, putting the two together. So you practice medicine at Mass General and Boston Children's. What made you decide to start working mostly in innovations, and how did you make that transition? Well, I've always been interested in kind of seeing what problems are and hope, hopefully solving them. I think one of the benefits we have as medical students or early in our medical training is we have beginner's mind. We see things with, with fresh eyes, like, why are we doing it this way? Are we still using fax machines? Why are we dosing all these patients the same way when they may weigh very different amounts? Um, and so I was always sort of looking at this and what might be better in the future um, and trying to solve problems. You know, even an early example, when I was a medical student, the internet was just coming online and the first e-commerce platforms and one of our challenges as medical students was buying extensive medical textbooks. And so I built the first online medical bookstore, which would give you a nice 10% discount. And I, I built a page to order them and pay, pay, folks would order books and I'd process orders and send them along through a drop shipper. And so, I, and I met Jeff Bezos years later said, I started a bookstore the same time you did, sir. Uh, but it was kind of the idea that there's unmet needs and we can solve them through technology, whether that's an online market or with a medical device or a, or, or a medical app. Um, and, you know, after Mass General and Boston Children's, I was lucky to train both pediatrics and internal medicine, so kids and adults. Um, I could sort of see the crossover of many technologies starting to come into medicine. And when I was back at Stanford for fellowships in oncology, hematology, um, also get my foot in digital health. We were putting in some of the first electronic medical records, um, Stanford has a rich environment around medical devices. I was part of the first-year program called BioDesign. And just the whole mindset that you can see a challenge and unmet need and solve it, whether you're a patient, a physician, a nurse, a technologist, it's a really exciting time to, to solve in new ways with technologies that are here or some of them that are coming along quickly. 
So with all of that background, what do you think might be some of the most groundbreaking medical or health-related devices that could affect us? Well, it doesn't need to be um, always groundbreaking. Some of these things sneak up on us and then become, uh, you know, from consumer to quote-unquote medical. I mean, just think where we are here in 2019. It was only 10 years ago, almost exactly, late 20, 2009, that the first Fitbit launched. And it wasn't the first, you know, accelerometer, but it was the first, I think, consumer version that could update the data to your phone and let you track your steps and then your sleep. And what's um, exciting now is that spurred a lot of what are called quantified selfers, people who like to track their data, their sleep, their steps, their diet. And it's starting to shift from the quantified selfers now to quantified health with these little, very, sometimes very low-cost consumer devices blending into our medical. So for example, now, you know, the new versions of the Apple Watch can when you've had a fall, it can even call 911 and save lives, or uh, can pick up heart rates, which might indicate someone has uh, uh, an unhealthy health rhythm like atrial fibrillation. So it's starting to become a bit of a check engine light for our bodies. You were a flight surgeon. Can you tell us how you decided to do that and what your work was like? Well, everyone asked me, you're a flight surgeon. Are you operating in airplanes? Uh, that wasn't really the case. I was always uh, enamored with space and aviation. When I was a little three or four-year-old, I was at the Apollo 17 launch, the last mission to to the moon. And years later, when I was a medical student, I spent a month at Johnson Space Center and ran into Gene Cernan in the clinic, who was the last man on the moon so far. Um, and uh, so I was always interested in space and flying and got my pilot's license actually when I was a sophomore in college. It was only $20 an hour for the airplane, including gas. <laughs> and found out, you know, I, of course, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I didn't really have 20-20 vision. But uh, by going to a program called International Space University, I met a whole bunch of interesting folks, including physicians who also were flight surgeons in the field of aerospace medicine. And while I was a resident at Mass General Hospital in Boston, I joined the Massachusetts Air National Guard, which at the time was on Cape Cod, uh, F-15 squadron. And I was like amazed. They would actually pay me to fly in fighter jets <laughs> and send me to um, the Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine. So I had a pretty amazing experience, you know, doing a deeper dive in aerospace medicine, getting to sort of be the like the team doctor, basically the, 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 the doctor for the pilots as well as the rest of the squadron and the wing. Part of that your mission is to actually fly with the pilots. You understand their operational environment. You sort of become one of the one of the squadron mates. I even got my own call sign, which was space spacecraft. Um, and, uh, you know, it was certainly different than flying in, in a Cessna <laughs> and also getting to really understand the military world and how that worked. We had some pretty interesting deployments, including to Saudi Arabia in 2000 to fly the, do the no-fly zone missions. So to jump ahead, I mean, it was a very interesting overlap of, of aerospace medicine, operational medicine, and seeing how the, um, the world works in, in big systems. And there are actually a lot of great lessons you can take from aviation to apply to healthcare. Some of the obvious ones are checklists. Um, there's a famous book, Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande, that's popularized you know, to make things safer in the operating room so you don't uh, cut off the wrong leg. Uh, there are now the use of simulation has expanded, just like we do simulation for pilots and simulators uh, in very dangerous situations that you can simulate. Now we're starting to do that in the operating room, in the clinic, how do you communicate? A lot of errors that occur in the cockpit are similar to ones that might occur in communication in, in the clinic or the ward or the operating room. So 
I like the overlaps, and it was also a lot of fun to, to fly in F-15s and F-16s. You've done a lot of work on stem cells and regenerative medicine. How do you explain that work to people who aren't necessarily doctors? Well, I think most folks have heard of stem cells um, and stem cell therapy. There's a lot of excitement, hype, and hope, sometimes uh, even snake oil involved in the field of stem cells and regenerative medicine. Um, I specialized in hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplantation, which is about a 50-year-old field, which is really the, the real clinical application today of, of stem cells at scale, where we can take blood-forming stem cells from your bone marrow, and for a patient who might have leukemia or lymphoma or genetic disease, transfer those to the recipient patient um, after high-dose chemotherapy and radiation to hopefully reboot the immune system and blood system and lead to a long-term cure. And that is a form of stem cell therapy we've been doing for, for again, 50 years. In the last 20 years, there's been a lot of interest now in using adult stem cells, some from our bone marrow, from skin, even the brain, and other locations that can be used uh, to help repair tissues that have been damaged by aging, um, trauma, or disease. Um, and most folks have heard of embryonic stem cells, which uh, have had some ethical debates, but have the ability to tr turn into almost every tissue type, or now what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, IPS stem cells, which the Nobel Prize was won for. These have only been around for about 12, 15 years, where you can take a skin cell from any of us or a white blood cell, reprogram it back to its stem cell function, and potentially use that to create uh, specific cells that could treat that same patient or others. So it's a pretty broad field. I'm trying to explain it briefly, but there's ability to use it to, again, cure cancers, to potentially um, maybe even 3D print organs uh, eventually, or ways to hopefully uh, treat a heart or a neural tissue after a, a disease or a stroke. Um, so there's a lot of interest in the field. Um, it hasn't always translated to clinical reality, and um, um, but there's a lot of potential using our own ability to regenerate cells and tissues and organs uh, to really uh, improve healthcare around the planet. It, we talked earlier about finding pain points and problems. When I was a bone marrow transplant fellow, the pain point I was experiencing and my patients were was the need to harvest bone marrow from a donor, sometimes a blood brother or a sister or a volunteer. And the standard way still today is to go to the operating room with a pretty big needle under general anesthesia, and after about 200 punctures, pull out about a liter of bone marrow. And I thought, eh, what if we could invent a way to improve that? And I came up with something called the marrow miner, and it's a, sort of a bit of a minimally invasive, almost a rotor-rooter type medical device to enable you, the clinician, to harvest the bone marrow from a patient much more quickly, just under one or two punctures and under local anesthesia as a tool for enabling a bone marrow transplant in any field using adult stem cells. So we have to create not just the science, but the tools to enable that and then get it into the hands of the clinicians and researchers and prove that it works in very specific controlled uh, clinical trials. So Daniel, you're also the faculty chair of medicine at Singularity University and the founder of companies and inventor of devices. With so many professional roles, is there one you tend to find more rewarding than the others? And how do you wear all those hats? <laughs> well, I don't wear all the hats at the same time, but um, I've had a pretty fascinating role you know, chairing medicine for Singularity University since it started 10 years ago. Um, the mission of Singularity U, which you can find at su.org, is all about training and educating 
today's leaders and future leaders to understand um, how we can leverage AI, big data, 3D printing, genomics, stem cells to address big challenges in the world from healthcare, education, environment, and beyond. And um, from that, I have grown out this program called Exponential Medicine, which is focused on how do we rethink and reimagine healthcare from the lens of technology and alignment of incentives and systems and design, because um, it's not about technology alone, but how do you really transit, translate that from something wow to something that really impacts um, patients at scale around the planet. So some of the things I really like to do is, is connecting the dots, uh, whether it's you know meeting physician-related groups, patient groups, pharma, biotech, to kind of get them up to speed with, this is already here. You know, What are you going to do with it, let alone what's coming? Again, what I most enjoy is, is bringing people together and sparking new ideas and collaborations uh, at the interface of clinical fields and technology um, and using that to meet unmet needs and pain points uh, that might be very local or could be common around the planet. So tell us about the Exponential Medicine Conference. What are the hot topics this year, and who's the audience? So Exponential Medicine, which will be this November 4th through 7th at the iconic Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, which was great to have you join our faculty last year. Um, it's, it's, it's not about one topic. It's kind of a theme again is what is the potential for the convergence of many of these technologies, AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, genomics, beyond, to come together to reshape healthcare. So translating, you know, big data to AI to actionable information at the point of care. Um, this year, we have some incredible folks addressing that topic. Uh, for example, we'll have uh, from Scripps, Eric Popel, who's a physician, has a new book out called Deep Medicine, really looking at how do we improve healthcare with AI machine learning and the human element being improved. And he'll be speaking with Abraham Bergesi, who's a well-known physician at Stanford, who kind of focuses on how do we teach medical students and others the art of the human exam, the human touch? So we'll be blending sort of the high tech with the, the human side. We'll have Stacy Chang, who is the lead of design at the new Dell Medical School. They're redesigning not just how medical school students get trained, but the physical environment of a hospital or a waiting room. They've gotten rid of waiting rooms, uh, for example. Um, we'll have some amazing sessions on uh, the future of the, the brain with Rudy Tanzi, who's the chair of uh, neurology at Mass General Hospital. Where's, where are we going with Alzheimer's? Where are we going with brain-computer interfaces? And I'm particularly excited about some sessions we'll have on where we're going with digital health, um, how we can take a pretty simple invention like a mobile EKG that can live on your watch or your smartphone and turn that into a big data system to really change how we're going to screen for cardiac disease, how we're learning from that, how that's getting integrated now into regular clinical care. You can go online and buy an EKG device or have one embedded in your phone. That's nice, but how do we translate that so it's really useful and we're crowdsourcing that sort of data to keep improving our knowledge set uh, around, the, around the globe? I will mention it's not just the conference. What's actually magical about it is we have 44 countries there, uh, a mix of physicians, patients, technologists, uh, innovators from inside of healthcare and outside. So it's not just for medical people. And because we're at the beach, <laughs> we mix it up with drum circles and silent discos and breakout workshops and allow people to get out of their usual silos and cross-connect. And plus, we have 50 startups there that join. So it's a, it's a real place to kind of find this interface from people all around the world to discover what's working, what could work better, how do you learn from others, 
and how do we appreciate what is going to be here with, you know, 5G and $100 genome and drones to deliver drugs and AI for drug development um, that will be impactful and individuals in healthcare systems and pharma and technologists need to know about if we're going to really create a better, brighter healthcare future for all of us. What is a silent disco? I think I missed that part. A silent disco, last, our last evening on the beach, we had a nice party, but then we move uh, and you basically put on a headset, a Bluetooth headset, and we have three different DJs playing different channels. And you, you can change the channel and you can see if you're red, green, or blue. And one might be disco, one might be classic rock, one might be you know house music. And so you can find people in your color and dance and run around outside and even be on the beach uh, without disturbing <laughs> the people who might be sleeping. One of my favorite stories is we have had a person as a participant, the later as faculty, Tony Young, who's the head of innovation for the NHS, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. And from coming to exponential medicine and seeing what was going on around the world, he started a new clinician innovators program in the NHS, which I think now has three or 400 uh, doctors now leveraging NHS, its data sets, its bases, technology, and clinical impact to catalyze new solutions. So it's a bit of a one of the impact stories that came out of people coming together at Exponential Medicine. You have two children, as you've told me, and I do too. And so I wanted to just ask you, what every parent might want to know as they're listening to you, including myself, how do you manage it all? <laughs> Don't look behind the curtain. Well, I've got three children, actually. I have a three-year-old, five-year-old son, and a 16-year-old daughter, and uh-huh. they're always teaching me lessons. And uh, especially when I asked my three-year-old yesterday, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to, I want to be a kid. You know, so Take lessons from your kids and stay uh, childlike with them. It's a lesson, I think, that we can all using the rest of our lives, you know, staying creative and open-minded and curious. I try and manage it well. Sometimes I use technology, for example, if I'm traveling, like uh, internationally, I have a, a, a telepresent robot called the Beam robot, and I can literally beam into my house from my laptop or phone and drive around and talk to them <laughs> and, and uh, almost play. Uh, so that's, you know, staying connected while away. Also being mindful of, of kids and their use of technology. There's a lot of debate how much screen time so at least for our younger boys, we try and limit iPad time and television time, um, but use it appropriately. It's not like it's a it's a one one size fits all. Um, but I think uh, um, it's great being a parent and watching developmental biology happen. And I'm a pediatrician as well, so I have to spend the rest of the time with my wife using the usual tool of pediatricians, which is reassurance. It's fine. <laughs> that rash, it doesn't mean much. <laughs> Relax. So, Daniel, you've talked a lot about the innovations that are out there and the fact that we're collecting data and now we're using the data. But maybe our users might be wondering, how do they keep their data private? And what can they do to make sure that they benefit from all this technology but not give away their privacy? I think the important element is not to be – we're in a sharing economy today. We all benefit from elements of sharing, like Google Maps and ways We couldn't imagine driving with out those, and I think if we have the mindset that we can all be data donors, and our healthcare map or a ways for medicine to help us on our individual journeys. That's part of sharing data. When you, by the way, are very aware that you are, and you opt in, and you can choose what you want to share. It might be your steps, your blood pressure, even your genome. Uh, I think let's say the the newer generations are more comfortable sharing, but that doesn't mean we should not be very mindful. You should be able to own your own medical data. At the same time, we need to have smart ways that, that can be shared so we can build these you know, Google Maps for, for health that will empower all of us. 
I think we need to be mindful but not um, spooked too much from using it. Many people ask me, you know, what should I be doing for my health? All this, you know, fancy technology sounds great, but what about today? And I would argue, there's that famous quote, the future is already here, just not evenly distributed. Everyone listening can play a role in using these technologies to match what they need and to help catalyze the future. Um, you can all spend a little more focus on understanding your sleep just from a wearable or a mattress sensor. Um, you can be looking at your uh, activity and are you getting enough and how do you compare to others? Um, you can get a connected scale, which can be scary to look at, but you can see what your change is from day to day and use that as a little bit of a nudge because you can have all the data in the world, but unless you use that to manifest better behaviors, you know, uh, more exercise, uh, better diets, it may not really matter. So, and, and then because some of these tools are out there, even the fact that you can get your own personal genome, help bring that information to your doctor or your nurse or your nutritionist. Um, start sharing some of your digital data and the insights uh, with your clinicians. Even if they may not want to see it today, they may not get yet paid for it or reimbursed, um, we can start to catalyze some of this more proactive, continuous, data-driven healthcare rather than just the reactive sick care system that we're used to. Thank you so much, Dr. Kraft. And for our listeners, if you're thinking of attending the Exponential Medicine Conference, you can use the promo code WEBMD when you register to receive a discount. The registration would be at exponentialmedicine.com. And you don't have to be a doctor to attend the conference. Here's our tweak of the week. Keep your cool when you're stuck in traffic. Americans set a new record for commuting last year of 27 minutes one way. That's almost an hour in the car every day. All that time on the road can be stressful, so take these steps to get to the office or back home in as zen a state as possible. First, mind your physical reaction. Keep your muscles loose and your breathing steady. If you let the traffic get to you, your body will pump out adrenaline and cortisol, creating a stressed-out feeling that could stick with you all day long. Next, tell yourself it isn't the end of the world. Traffic happens. Sure, walking in late seems like a big deal at the time, but unless you do it every day, your coworkers will have forgotten by the time they finish their first cup of coffee. Finally, do something to help yourself relax. Check out some music, a new audiobook, or an awesome podcast, like this one. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next time. <laughs>